We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me in the studio this evening are Neil Bradley and Pierre Lescaudron. Hello. Bonjour. Hello, everybody. Uh, this week, we are talking about about the state of the world. And boy, is the world in a pretty dire state. I mean, all you have to do is really just look around you. But I mean, really look. Take off the blinkers and look at the world around you, and you can't help but be horrified at what is commonly called our modern civilization. But it's not just human society that's in a mess. The entire ecosystem seems to be falling apart too. And yet, most people just carry on as if nothing is wrong. As if things will continue on as they always have. Well, I'm sorry to have to tell you, but the chances of that happening are pretty slim. More than likely, things are going to just get worse. So you should prepare for it. But my question is, what's it going to take for people to wake up? Maybe they just need to be told and again and again and have evidence over and over again of what's going wrong and to have it get worse and worse and worse. Maybe we can, you know, it's kind of depressing, you know, because, I don't know, people probably listening to this show know that the kind of work that we do, we look every day and detail of what's going on and a bit of disconnect there from most people who uh, you know out there in the world who don't do that you know they're they're kind of occupied with their daily lives and their jobs and whatever else entertains them so there's maybe a bit of a disconnect in the sense of we're seeing things you know up close and personal every day and we're shoving our noses into it every day and really kind of getting worried about it and we're wondering why isn't everybody else you know um, but as I just said, maybe, you know, we can't expect people to do that, to pay such close attention to it, but maybe it just needs to be dumped in their laps, basically, in a in a more extreme, uh, more forceful way. And maybe that's, that's what we're saying. That's more, more than likely, that's what's going to happen. So anyway, the state of the world, Neil, what's wrong with it? And how can we fix it? Well, regarding civilization and or the lack of it, I think it was Gandhi who said, Civilization, yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, we should get on that. <laughs> An abstract concept, eh? Yeah, someday maybe. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I get depressed by it too, but maybe it depends what we mean by the world waking up. Well, because there's enough, you know, there's enough response going on. Although it's still disconnected from reality, yeah, we might be able to say that at least in some directions it moves closer towards seeing reality as it is. Mm-hmm. The problem is the amount of lies and disinformation that are being spread by the mainstream media around the world, 
causes people who do have something in them that you know that they feel that they there's something wrong and they need to react they need to do something they need to uh to to try and agitate a little bit for change that they sense in some way or maybe they, that there's something wrong or they have some specific grievances the problem is that that's always misdirected by chiefly by the mainstream media in league with big government it's misdirected into dead end um you know endeavors or dead end uh, uh kind of agendas or you know causes that people fight for you know um i mean one example might be uh i mean it's it's kind of like having giving the people something to complain about or something to fight against or a boogeyman or a bad guy you know that they can uh, they can direct their energies towards you know um and of late in the media and news i've noticed that a lot of people in the west anyway are very anti russian and specifically anti vladimir putin he's the bad guy these days and bizarrely it seems because he had the temerity to host the uh winter olympics because they can't have he's been a bad guy for quite a few years now since basically he came to power uh, as far as the west is concerned he's the bad guy so he has the temerity to host the winter winter olympics and uh, and the basket in the kind of international um i suppose glory to some extent or recognition that that brings and as much as the western media have covered the olympics themselves they've always carried another story in some way or other bashing either the hosting of the olympics or putin himself or homophobia uh, anti-gay supposed anti-gay laws in russia so it's kind of ridiculous you know I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with Russia. I'm saying mm. it's extremely hypocritical for Western nations, specifically the U.S. and the U.K., to be leading this charge against Russia yeah. when they themselves are mired in filth, corruption, and everything else. There's a certain flavor to what it is they're bashing Putin and Russia generally with. I mean... They're picking up on the smallest things. Now, this is not to say that the whole gay, gay rights issue is not a small thing. We'll get to that in a minute. But in terms of the criticism of Russia's hosting of the Olympic Games, I mean, oh, this toilet didn't work. Well, yeah, every single Games is always behind schedule. Yeah. All of them. Curtains were missing in one of the hotel rooms. What were missing? Curtains. Curtains, oh my God. Yeah, that's pretty serious. I seem to remember similar complaints about other Olympics. The one that springs to mind is uh, uh, in Greece, I think it was 2004, wasn't it, in Greece? Mm-hmm. I remember there was a lot yes. of uh, kind of complaints, but it didn't have the same flavor of a political agenda behind it to demonize, you know, uh, a political leader yeah. uh, by way of criticizing the infrastructure of, uh, of, of the Olympic Games, you know. And finally, it's consistent. Olympic Games are like most mediatic events are propaganda tools. And uh, Western nations, Western leaders are using the current Olympic Games to further their political agenda, amongst which objectives are the demonization, for several reasons, of uh, Vladimir Putin. It's all the more ironic and hypocritical that Honestly, all this media support that was given to London 2012, Pinnacle, 
of profit and um, brainwashing and uh, crowd control and people control. You know, the main partners in London 2012 were Dan Call, responsible for the Bhopal uh, major accident, uh-huh. McDonald, Coca-Cola. You had ArcelorMittal that had uh, fired 70,000 employees and made profit records. You Shell, had, Shell Oil. Yeah, uh, and BP, you had BP who was just out of the major oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. You had a state, a police state that was established for the Olympic Games in London with uh, the army, with navy ships, with helicopters, with the Olympic Act, a law that was specifically designed for this event and that allowed any officer to arrest and search any citizen without any warrant, without any reason. You had this major event, brainwashing event that was praised by all the medias. And now, what is Putin doing? Putin is doing basically a similar thing, but it's the opposite way. You see the difference in treatment here? Yeah. Indeed. Not long ago, I, I, I would have just... I mean, I still do. I don't have that much of an interest, to be honest, in watching sports, uh, the Olympic Games included. So, you know, I would always have dismissed all oh, the games, just more bread and circuses, right, for the masses. And it's, it is. That's essentially what it is. But you've got to understand it's what the people want, some of them anyway, a large section, let's say. And this is, yes, it's Putin currying favor with his people, and internationally as well. But so what? That's what that's what the, they all do. Mm-hmm. That's what the Olympics are for, largely from a political point of view. They're to, they're to increase the profile of the given country internationally and to attract all sorts of things indirectly, like you know investment and you know all tourism, sorts of tourism, etc. Um, you know that's how they make their money back from it. You know that's how that's why it's valuable. That's why countries lobby for these kind of events. So, they spent fifty-one billion dollars on this event. Well, actually, they only spent up to ten on the actual sports facilities. Yeah, and they built a lot of infrastructure. Yeah, they actually which rebuilt the region. Yeah, and there was almost nothing there. So, if a sport event is used, is used as a development tool, that can be something that can be a positive aspect of Olympic Games. In many cases. It was not, uh, that's not what happened. Greece is a good example. And you have main, m- many facilities that were developed for 2004 that are now ruins. And yeah. used, it's public money that was thrown to the window. You've got to wonder about the Greek one. Three years later, the country falls apart. You know? Yeah. Um, and about the, the deep, the meaning of the Olympic Games. Why is it such a huge event? With uh, London 2012, you had 5 billion viewers, 80% of the population that watch one or another event included in the, in the Olympic Games. And if you look at history, there's a, another political agenda in the Olympic Games. So if you give me two minutes, maybe. Um, it was created in the 8th century BC in Greece, in Olympia, in the plain of Olympia. And this plane was a particular place. It was a religious place with one of the main Greek temples there and one of the seven wonders, the statues of Zeus. And uh, so the priest created, 
the Olympic Games. And didn't create the Olympic Games, as you can imagine, because they loved sport. There was an ideological agenda. At this time, Olympia was at war for years, and people started to have doubts about this war and to criticize this war because husbands were dying and brothers were dying and sons were dying. It was not ending. So the local king, in partnership with the local clergy, started the Olympic Games. That brought two positive things for the people. I mean, apparently positive. A, every four years, the war was stopping. The only thing that could stop the war was the Olympic Games. So for one month, every four years, you had a break. That was the most welcome for this oppressed population. And the second thing is that ideologically, the Olympic Games were praising a specific vision of the world based on victory, fight, competition, individualism, values that in the end are not very dissimilar from the values that are exacerbated during armed conflicts. Okay, so this is like a kind of a release valve for what would otherwise be energy spent on war. Yes, uh, it can be perceived as a, for paranoid-oriented uh, mind, it can be perceived as a diversion aimed at the people, so to reduce anti-war, to increase individualism, to... It's a powerful polarization tool when you well, think about it, because it preys mostly psychopathic values. Well, it's, it's kind of patriotism being the last refuge of scoundrels. You know, it obviously focuses people on their nation. It gets them all into a jingoistic kind of fervor, which obviously only serves serves the interests of, of the elites in a certain sense, um, that people would, you know, mm. hold on to this and have this idea of patriotism uh, reinforced within them, you know. So in that sense, it's good. There's no deep conspiracy about it. It's just human nature and the way things uh, have, have been pushed and formed over the past, as Pierre said, you know, a few thousand years. So, um, but so you don't ascribe to this idea that this is the Illuminati pushing satanic symbols on the masses. Like in London in 2012, uh, there was all sorts of Illuminati symbols supposedly in the opening ceremony in the London Olympics. Uh, no, that was nonsense. That's people navel-gazing and uh, engaging in, you know, pseudo or almost borderline schizophrenic behavior. Uh, same kind of things that people uh, do around uh, bombings recently. You know, there's, you know, apparently for some people, there's only so many false flag bombing attacks that they can endure before they just fall into a schizoidal kind of a state where they start to see all sorts of things uh, like actors, <clears throat> etc., and fake blood and fake bombs and... You know, uh, anyway, um, the, uh, yeah, the Olympics is, uh, the Winter Olympics is an opportunity for Putin to um, to increase the stock of Russia around the world. And the uh, West being anti-Russia and anti-Putin don't want to let him uh, get away with too much of that. So they use the media, the mainstream media, to uh, bring him down a peg or two to remind everybody that don't get too excited about Russia, don't be thinking about Russia in any kind of a favorable light because we want you to maintain your kind of attitude of our attitude. We want you to have our attitude, the elite's attitude of, uh, of Putin is evil, Russia is evil. Uh, and that's what they've been doing. And there must be some <coughs> cringing from the Western elites because 
over the last decades, there we, there's been a, an inflation in budget, you know. Every country trying to show its magnificence to the Olympic Games. Bigger installation, bigger hotel, bigger budgets. Mm-hmm. And Putin managed to, uh, to create the most magnificent Olympic Games ever. The biggest, or the biggest budget at least. And uh, it's also a sign in, of the time in, in the sense that uh, Russia now has obviously the financial resources to organize the most expensive Olympic Games, more expensive than the ones organized in Europe, in the US, mm-hmm. even in China. That's a change. Yeah. Um, big player. We may have a call here. Hi. Do we have a caller on the line? Or a listener. Or a listener? Maybe not. Hi, caller. Do we have a caller? Uh, no? Okay. I'm a listener. You're a listener, all right. You're welcome. Um, so, one of the other things that they used to try and demonize, and this is a backstory to the whole Olympic things with Putin, was the, the bombings a month ago. Was it a month ago? Six weeks ago? Late December, yeah. In, in Volvograd. Mm-hmm. Uh, two bombings in a train station. <clears throat> Uh, this was blamed on, uh, well, nobody in particular. <coughs> no, nobody claimed it until mid-January. Well, even then, it wasn't claimed claim by any particular group. There was a YouTube video with two guys on it. Two guys goofing around who claimed that he claimed they, they, did. they did it, which didn't make sense because they're supposed to have died in a suicide bomb. Anyway, they said... No, this also, was before they did They released ah, the video. Right. They just released before. the video now. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and they... Um, if the Sochi Games went ahead, they would promise to deliver a, quote, present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you had these two bombings that were um, in, tra- in train station. Uh, train station and then a bus blew up. And a bus blew up um, in Volgograd, which isn't that far from Sochi. It's about 600 kilometers. Yeah, and this is in the comment of last year, uh, Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia threatening Putin uh, that if he didn't stop, if he would it was a more of a positive uh, suggestion. If he stops interfering or preventing the West doing what it wants to do in Syria, which is get rid of Assad via supporting al-Qaeda to destroy the country and kill all, this, all of the uh, Syrian civilians, uh, if, if, if Putin would allow Bandar and therefore the US and the UK and France to do that, he would be able to ensure that the Olympics were threat-free, because he said that he controls, Saudi Arabia controls, these so-called Chechen Muslim terrorists. And Putin, apparently, there wasn't much report of what Putin actually said, but apparently it didn't go down too well, and he didn't take the offer. And then you have this bombing in Volgograd just a few weeks before the Olympics. Mm. And supposedly, uh, one of the things that that comes out of uh, Chechen and these Chechen terrorists is the um, Black Widows. These are female suicide bombers, and they're called Black Widows yeah, locally in Chechnya. Um, now, I might just say something about suicide bombers again. I think everybody probably knows it, but suicide bombing, the whole concept of suicide bombing is ridiculous. It's a fabrication. Uh, the first organization to propose the idea of a suicide bomb uh, leaving aside the kamikaze pilots, because that doesn't really count, but in more modern times, was the British British intelligence, MI5, uh, came up with the idea 
uh, and in Northern Ireland to they got one of their agents who had infiltrated the IRA to um, to propose the idea of using well he went ahead and did it of getting hijacking a car in it uh, and putting a bomb in it and then forcing somehow you would force the person under threat of death to go and drive the bomb into a British Army barracks or something like that. So this was the first reported kind of modern incidents of, it was in the late 80s, of, of suicide bombing, but it wasn't really a suicide bombing. It didn't involve someone consciously saying, I'm going to blow myself up. Now, if you think about suicide bombing, it's ridiculous. Okay, Chechen terrorists, okay, the Palestinians, all these people, uh, they have the ability, supposedly, to get a bomb into a train station or a supermarket or wherever else, and it's strapped to their bodies. But they choose to blow themselves up. Now, okay, leave aside, let's say, for example, that it's much, much easier to get a bomb into a train station because it's hidden under your clothes rather than in a backpack. Because obviously a backpack in a train station would make you stand out, right? Uh, I mean, you'd be searched, right? Maybe there's searches or something, but what, they don't search your body? Yes, they search your body. So it doesn't fly anyway, the idea that but the point here is, is that suicide bombing is designed, it's a completely Muslim, uh, these days, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a Muslim tactic. And it's clearly anti-propaganda uh, designed to demonize any so-called Muslim terrorists and make everybody in the West terrified of them because they're so crazy that they want to yeah. attack the West by killing themselves. They're willing to kill themselves. But yeah. obviously they're very stupid as well. Because yeah. why would you not keep that one operative alive so what even let's say even the best way to get a bomb into your to your target is to strap it to your body but when you get there you can't just unfasten the clip in the back and drop it in the ground and then walk maybe you know 30 yards away and then push the button i mean none of it makes any sense it's completely feasible and far probably just as easy to you know explode a bomb that way and have at least a good chance of saving yourself but no, these people want to blow themselves up. They don't even, they, they, clearly they want to die. This is, this is the idea that is presented by Western intelligence agencies and Western governments about Muslims and any enemy yeah. du jour is that given the choice to carry out attack against their enemy, where they survive to fight another day or die and waste their lives essentially, they will choose to waste their lives, sacrifice themselves for no good reason. That's, that's the logic behind it if you follow it through. And it reinforces the belief that uh, Muslims are stupid fanatics. Of course. And, and, and there's another question. But how can they be so successful? How can they ever be so successful if they're so goddamn stupid? Because that's one of the most uh, idiotic uh, at a planning level for any organization to not be able to come to kind of go, uh, maybe we should try and like keep our operatives alive instead of killing them all the time through suicide bombings, you know, because that's not maybe... We're going to run out of them after, you know. They they're not able to actually formulate that idea because they're so stupid. So but, we're told, but in fact... But yes, they're able to actually carry out bombing, so it doesn't fit. The point is, it's bullshit. Anyone who actually finds himself in any kind of a guerrilla movement, freedom-fighting movement, one of the first things they realize is, shit, we're few in numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to, you know, maximize resources, including people. Yep. It simply just doesn't happen. They don't ever come to a planning decision where we're going to create an army of black widows and send them out 
it's uh, and there is it, another. It, it's defies strategy one hundred and one. Yeah, another flaw in the official narrative about uh, suicide bombers is when you check about the, the results or the geopolitical consequences of such quote unquote suicide bombing. Usually, the political reactions to such terrorist acts do not serve the interests that are allegedly defended by the terrorists. Yeah, so the point about this was, this, you know, little diversion into suicide bombings was that this was uh, the threat against the Olympics. This was another way that they kind of uh, cast a pallor over Putin's Olympics, was that it Essentially, having the bombings beforehand, uh, and there's okay, folks. I think we're back. Uh, sorry about that. That's just one of Blog Talk Radio's uh, many annoyances. Uh, this time, it's our internet connection that seems to be no. I don't think very so. weak. No, no, there's nothing wrong with internet connection. Uh, something about Blog Talk Radio. Anyway. So, what were we saying? Uh, we were saying that... Suicide bombing? Yeah, the suicide bombing was used to demonize the Olympics, and obviously this is, you know, this, this kind of... Uh, the threat of bombing at the Olympics was used to demonize and bring down the whole kind of, you know, positive image of, the, of uh, Russia hosting the, the Olympics. And um, um, that's what we saw in 2008 in Beijing. Remember all this uproar about oh human rights, China, totalitarian, communist, socialist regime. How can, do we dare organizing Olympic Games, such a worldwide event about solidarity and fraternity mm-hmm. in a country abusing human rights? Mm-hmm. Now the same in Russia. And the one who say that, who was so shamed by the, the breach of human rights in China and uh, mm-hmm. Political excess in, in Russia are the US, UK, Europe that do the same or maybe worse. Mm. Here's the thing though. This location that Putin chose is in it's a particular area. You go east, you hit Chechnya and Dagestan where terrorist attacks are still taking place. You go a little north, of course, that's where the Volgograd bombings happen. 30 kilometers away is Georgia, where Israeli and U.S. special forces spurred the Georgians to attack Russia not four years ago. Mm. You know, this is, there's something about Putin's choice of this place that I wonder, is he sending a message back to them saying, so yeah, you're going to try and stir up trouble right in this area, okay? This is what I'm going to do. Because Russia was not... It wasn't easy for them to get these games. Putin himself had to make it his pet project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and probably... He learned an English uh, spend speech a lot of in money. English and French that he gave to the IOC to win the games. At the same time, you know, we mentioned previously that Putin had, or Russia had spent a lot of money on infrastructures, roads, thousands of kilometers of roads and railroads and uh, all this equipment... Maybe by developing this area, he's making a strategic move because he knows that nearby in Georgia, Chechnya, these are strongholds of uh, Western forces. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I was just on the whole. The reason I was talking about the bombing was the bombing has featured the, the threat of bombing at the Olympics has featured very highly, as most people probably are aware. Um, and there was, uh, I was reading something on CNN. You know, uh, CNN released a poll. Uh, I thought it was funny because they had a poll. Um, they called it an authoritative opinion poll. That and the results were that fifty percent of Americans think think terror attack likely at Sochi Games. I thought that was beautiful because they've just spent the past several weeks promoting CNN had and all the other news agencies had spent the past few weeks promoting the idea that there probably would be a bombing on planting that idea. Uh, are the terror are, are the Olympics safe? Will there be a terror attack? So after a few weeks of that, then they ask the, the people what they think, and people say, "Yep, I think there will be." Wow. How did you come to that conclusion? That's amazing. That's really that's that's some really serious critical thinking in your part. Are you uh, are you are you with some think tank or something? Do you have some inside information? Okay. No, CNN. I got it from you. You're asking me to tell you what you told me to say. If the poll was not rigged, it's not, well, even if it's rigged, I mean, I don't think they're rigged anymore because they know what they can get back from the people. They get back from the people exactly what they shove down their throats. Yeah, they they coach them. They coach them? them? Are you joking? They give people their thoughts. That's how bad it is. We're talking about the state of the world here. People's thoughts come from the mainstream media. People don't have their own thoughts. The majority of people do not have their own thoughts. Do not That's think. how bad it is. Yeah. If you ask them anything about the world, they either give you back what the mainstream media has been promoting for the past few weeks, or they don't know at all. They have no idea. Like, uh, you know, there's people on the web who kind of go around asking people strange questions about history and stuff like that. And the answers mm-hmm. some of them give are just uh, amazing. You know, like uh, JFK was shot this morning. Do you think that's a good thing? And people say, wow, yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, that's, that's not a good thing. That kind of stuff, you know. So that's sure. the level of, of kind of... Yeah, I, I know you're, talk, you're talking about Mark Dice who's yeah. on the East Coast. Of, I think he's in California and he goes around asking people these uh, questions. West Coast. Um, there's an even more egregious example. I think it was a mainstream source that uh, a satire site or something, and they asked people their opinion of how the, I think the Golden Globe or some awards ceremony had gone. The implication being that it had taken place that that day, that yeah. day or the day before, and everyone answered, <laughs> "Oh yeah, yeah, it was great." Um, and then they're asked more detailed questions. Like, so what do you think of so-and-so's performance oh. and so on? And people go, oh, yeah, well, he shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, that was really, really funny. Well, they and then they're told at the end, so actually, it's going to take place today or yeah. tomorrow. No, like, wow. So they did, he did one on, uh, somebody did one on, um, on Obama's, topically enough, Obama's ah, State of the Union that's address. That's what I'm thinking. And what, yeah. they, what they thought of it. And he hadn't, it was that night, and they asked him during the day, what do you think of it? And they gave him all sorts of, all sorts of answers of what they thought of it and why it was good, why it was bad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean things are bad at that level. People don't realize how, just how bad they are, but they are really bad. Just assume that they're really, really bad. Anyway, um, well, okay. So Russia is, I mean, the Russian government more or less ignoring. Well, they're not. I mean, they're ignoring the his, the hysterical value they could extract from hosting these games. They could be telling their own population, yeah, there's a terrorist threat. They, don't, they just quietly position 100,000 or more, whatever, security mm-hmm. in the area, and they just get, deal with it. Meanwhile, the U.S. media is doing it on their behalf, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. You've got headlines like the, the toothpaste bomb threat. This is, uh, I guess it was last Wednesday. 
U.S. government warned American and foreign airlines that militants could try to hide explosives in toothpaste tubes on Russia-bound flights. An official told AFP that the U.S. government has information specifically targeting flights to Russia. And then there's also a little thing that kind of made it real, so to speak. Um, the day before the ceremony, there was a flight from Ukraine to Istanbul. It, it, it actually it landed in Istanbul, but there was a scare when some passenger piped up and said, there's a bomb on board. Mm-hmm. Please direct me to Sochi. Uh, and I think the, the pilot dealt with it admirably. He just said, okay, we'll do that. And they just landed in Istanbul. Yeah, they told me what they were going, but uh, maybe an important detail on that was that uh, reportedly the alleged bomber who didn't have a bomb was terribly, terribly drunk. Ah. Uh, so it was easy to convince him, and apparently easy to uh, subdue him and convince him that, yeah, we're going to Sochi, don't worry, just sit down and have another bottle of vodka. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's interesting how how these kind of things, um, you know, who, who we don't know who that was, but it's interesting, you know, to think that that event by some drunk Turk, maybe, or if he, maybe he wasn't Turkish, but... Um, Maybe he was Muslim uh, and sympathized with, you know, uh, the Chechens, for example, uh, that he, this came to him on this flight that he was going to, you know, hijack the plane, you know. Uh, and certainly that doesn't happen in a vacuum. The guy doesn't, like we were saying, people don't get their, their opinions generally from themselves. They get them from the, from the media. And, uh, of course, he also could have been gay, homosexual, uh, in which case he would have a lot of reason to be very anti-Putin because of uh, Putin's alleged, the Russian government's alleged crackdown on uh, on homosexuality and their anti-gay, anti-homosexual uh, laws that have been passed in, in yeah, Russia. Yeah, the, the goal of Western governments to moralize about human rights in any way, shape, or form is disgusting. Mm. And they are beating Russia as hard as they can with this, what is actually propaganda. And the twist in it is just, they're saying the Russians are using, this this is anti-gay propaganda on the Russians' part. Whereas the actual law that was passed last June, and now it's been made an issue of, specifically says that it would prohibit propaganda directed at minors. Mm. Now, well, the, yeah, they use the term propaganda, and that's being twisted into saying that this is propaganda with some nefarious purpose against homosexual people in Russia. The implication being that, oh, yeah, okay, they say one thing on, on the surface of Russian, but really they have a sinister goal behind it. Mm. Yeah, Nonsense. There is this trend in Russia against Russia, and you see this agenda being furthered in Europe, particularly, where by invoking freedom, sexual freedom, the uh, homophobia, some politicians are furthering nefarious vision of the world, pro-pedophile vision, a vision 
of the world where pedophilia and homosexuality are actually the norm. To fight anti-homo, to fight homophobia, you don't have to transform the gay movement or gay people, homosexuality into the norm. It's mm. about acceptance, equality mm. of right. Mm. Not about the norm. <clears throat> I may be wrong, but the norm is for a man and a woman to be together and have children. That's what usually works. It doesn't mean that you cannot tolerate or you cannot have a society with uh, homosexuals. That's not what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. What they're trying to do is to change the norm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, while they attack Russia on this basis, it, it's been bizarre. It's been about two years going now, and it's, it's systematic. Just about every country, one after the other, in the West in general, let's call it, has been uh, legalizing gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Not just not just the actual ceremonial aspect of it, but the point being to give full legal rights mm-hmm. to gay couples, mm-hmm. extending everywhere in terms of their property rights, of course, the, but then also into the rights to have children. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's I'm, I'm not going to argue one way or another for or against it. I'm just staggered by the fact that. On the one hand, it's this, it's, I mean, it's, it's long overdue. Of course, it's, it's what people, it's, it's the way people live. It's a basic principle, live and let live. Mm-hmm. But it's coming from people whose very ethos, totally the opposite. Is living that they, cannot, they cannot leave other people alone. Mm-hmm. It goes further than giving an individual whatever his sexual orientations are, homosexual or heterosexual, equal rights. Because first step was to allow gay marriage. Second step, that has been uh, acted in some countries and uh, reached the stage of law project in northern and other countries, is to give some extra rights, like right to adopt, some rights about estate, some civil rights to gay couples. And that's uh, pro-gay policy 2.0. But there's pro-gay policy 3.0 coming. The gender theory. Gender theory, basically, is teaching all the kids compulsory classes from a very early age in every school. It's already been promulgated and applied in parts of Switzerland, Germany, in 600 schools in France as an experiment, where basically you brainwash your kids telling them that homosexuality is okay, being a transsexual is okay, anal sex is okay, having sex when you're very young is okay, masturbation when you're four years old is okay. So you see how step by step we're going much behind giving equal rights to any individual homosexual or heterosexual. And what is even more suspicious is that this evolution goes hand in hand with a very pro-pedophile policies. Mm-hmm. Um, you think so? The, uh, that's, here that's, that's part of why there's an uproar. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're saying that by implication, in Russia's case, for example, they're equating pedophilia with 
homosexuality. Yeah, because they're not making a distinction. It goes in in hand because in this uh, gender theory, the key ideological ideological point I think is sexual freedom, which might not be a bad thing if it's used the right way, but according to their documents. It's sexual freedom without no limit and aimed at the children. And for decades, the motto of pro-pedophile movements has been to say, we're not pedophile, we, oh, we don't do anything bad. Actually, they acknowledge that they're pedophile, but they say, we only respect the desire of the children. Children at a very early age have sexuality, mm-hmm. they have desires, and we're just saying yes to those very legitimate desires. Mm-hmm. Those desires are not legitimate. A children four years old doesn't know about good and bad, about wrong and... It, those things destroy children. Yeah, I, I totally agree that they, that they take it too far. You know, because yes. it's, it's a simple matter of uh, equal rights uh, for the, the gay, uh, gay couples and the homosexual community, let's say, not even even the idea of a homosexual community. I suppose ideally, you know... Ideally, they ideally, would not be a community apart. Well, exactly. If it's so normal, ideally, or if it can be seen as very normal and integrated, let's say, into society more than it is today, then it wouldn't, there wouldn't be any talk of a gay community. It would simply be members of society. And they would have exactly the same rights, and there wouldn't be any big issue about it. But I, in that sense, I don't see anything wrong with Putin uh, at least casting this law or the Russian government casting their law as a defense of children you know that I mean whether or not there's any incident this could be something that's internal to Russia as well you know that uh, is there any incidents of uh, homosexuals in Russia uh, trying to push it a bit too far in the sense of tar- you know, targeting children or targeting, do you know what I mean, to, to like as Pierre was describing, you know, at, 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 a, at a very young age, <clears throat> kind of swaying the mentality or influencing the choice or influencing, you know, I mean, that's wrong. Uh, in the same way that uh, you know, children should not be subjected to any kind of an undue in- influence on things that they, that they are too young to understand. Uh, so whether or not that's actually happening in Russia, I don't know. But if it was, then yeah, you could. Um, it may be necessary to kind of like do something about it. But the problem is that this has been this issue with this Russian law has been blown out of proportion and made an issue by the Western press. You know, I mean, songs the uh, in the video of it and the, the theme of the song was that the two of them were essentially lesbian. Okay, so uh, yeah, that was Blog Talk Radio again. Apparently, they're you know they're overloaded with their Skype, uh, their call-ins. I don't know why so many people are maybe having a show right now. It's, uh, I'm not sure it's exactly prime time uh, in the US. But um, anyway, I was saying about tattoo about the uh, this Russian pop group. They actually uh, played at the at the uh, at the opening ceremony, and they played a song that openly depicted a lesbian relationship. 
So how does that square with this supposed Russian law that is so draconian that's mm. been forced on everyone um, that, that, that criminalizes the promotion of, uh, of homosexuality to children? Surely, I mean, how many children were watching the opening ceremony? Quite a lot in Russia. Mm-hmm. And they see this video, this song by this group. You know, I mean, it doesn't make any well, sense. The UK press insinuated that that was a propaganda move on mm-hmm. Putin's part, that Putin deliberately selected that pop group to make the point that, look, it's not so bad here. What do we, but but it, goes, it goes directly against what he's accused yeah, of doing. Yeah. It's not so homophobic he, then. Yeah, he's it's absurd. So, it's absurd. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't the, there's a, a leader of a, of a gay rights movement in, yes. in Russia? His name escapes me, but um, this is a guy who the leading, uh, he's quoted as the leading gay rights activist by The Guardian in English paper. So this is a guy who's been, who has been physically attacked in Russia on at least one occasion. So, you know, he, he knows what the situation is there. He's, he has come out, no pun intended, and said, look, the propaganda being used by the West in this uproar over the anti-gay rights, so to speak, quote-unquote, law in Russia is way over the top. Mm. You are not doing us a favor at all. <laughs> Desist. There's also statements from um, gay athletes who have arrived in Sochi. Mm-hmm. Got one here. Um, headline here, gay Austrian athlete says fuss over Russia law is exaggerated. I also listened to the gay captain of the U.S. women's hockey team saying that this is exaggerated. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to this at all. Yeah. And there isn't. Of course there isn't. But you've got... The, it's, 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 this, it's this stench of hypocrisy of, of people in the West, particularly our elites, using this, this angle when they are, are the least sensitive to anyone else's rights. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also... There's a modus operandi. I might be wrong here, but you know how anti-Semitism can be used can be created out of nothing or blown out of proportion to justify Zionist policies. In the same way, I have the feeling that homophobia is being blown out of proportion or maybe created out of, out of nothing to justify pro-pedophile policies. It's a bogus. It's just an excuse. The people who talk so much about fighting against Homophobia don't care at all about equalities, civil rights, homosexuals. They just use a cause that resonates in people's mind and heart to further nefarious agenda. Nothing else. Yeah, well, there is a lot of evidence of you know high-level pedophile rings in the UK, in Europe, in the US, in a lot of places. Uh, that's kind of conclusive at this stage. There's hard evidence mm-hmm. for the existence of those among our political leaders, these are the type of people we're talking about. So you're, you're suggesting, Pierre, that, uh, that the gay rights movement is being pushed beyond what is reasonable because it, when it's pushed that far, it extends into allowing for, for example, what is it called, man-boy love groups and stuff like that and legitimizing the idea that 
adult can have sexual relationships with children, that, that, that it's an extension of, almost of it, not in that it's an extension of homosexuality, not that homosexuals are, can be conflated with pedophiles, but that, um, that, that they can push it far enough to legitimize that. It's a nefarious use of the, homosexual, the, the gay rights agenda to, to legitimize something that is altogether exactly. evil. Exactly, basically the modus operandi is, uh, is as old as uh, humanity, I suppose. It's, you start with a rather legitimate cause, homophobia, existing or not. But you immediatize it and you will hysterize population to it. So if you have a case of a homosexual being beaten in the street, it would be everywhere in the media. So you get this uh, emotional susceptibility in in uh, in the public. And then you will act as if you were a good politician and you will start to pass laws that supposedly are aiming to fight against this uh, unjust behaviors and anti-homophobia laws, step by step, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, you know, gay wedding, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and then uh, gay rights for adoption, and then gay rights for surrogate mother, and then gay rights for inheritance and uh, a state, and then reducing uh, ma- sexual majority age, and then uh, sexual freedom for children, and we see where it's going because those pedophile rings that are very powerful, very very powerful, and that present at the top of every social pyramid: laws, judge, lawyers, police officers, politicians, businessmen, has been trying to push this agenda. That's you can see the same signatures in those laws, in those projects, because that's the same agenda for decades. The man, boy, love. So what they try to do is to imprint in boys' mind that having sex with adult men is good, it's right, and next step it would be for them to believe that it's good, and at the same time for the parents and the population to believe that indeed, it's just about love. You know, if the boy is happy and if the, the adult yeah. is happy, they're both happy and it's about freedom. What, what are you trying to do? You're trying to fight against freedom? Against pleasure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, We're not in a totalitarian regime. Are you anti-gay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see the, <clears throat> the steps when you look back. I mean, go back to the US and the Kinsey report that claimed that, well, I don't know, half of children are molested by their parents and incest was a norm in the United States back in the 1950s. And that created an uproar because it was not a norm. Kinsey himself was a predator. It was a norm for him. But in introducing an academic research, a line of research into it, in, in, in trying to promote it bit by bit, not necessarily in a consciously planned campaign, of course. It's just more natural. If you're a psychopath, and you've got pedophilic tendencies, you just see the world that way. You are going to naturally add to your vision of the world based on how you see it. And step by step, it, you now have a situation where you might actually have a quarter of children molested at some point. I think, in fact, it's one in two girls in the U.S. before they reach adulthood have been sexually molested. It's something pretty astronomical. That is now the reality of the, the elites of the very same countries. I mean, the leaders, Obama, uh, Cameron, Hollande, 
made a show of not attending, of boycotting the Winter Olympics. They're defending it, in, you know, they're as a protest to honor people's rights. But a few, no, a few months before, they are in Tel Aviv. Yeah, the hypocrisy is, is staggering, you know, from, you know, the two biggest, you know, front men for the biggest psychopathic murderous clans on the planet, uh, Cameron and Obama, are the ones who are making the biggest uh, show of defending the rights of supposedly homosexuals in Russia. And people are meant to believe that. People are sucking it up. And people are arguing on comments on websites. Yeah. yeah, Putin's evil and stuff. Look at Obama's such a great guy for staying away. He shouldn't go there. Blah, blah, blah. And this guy's a killer. He's a serial killer, basically. He blows up women and children on a daily basis via ordering drone strikes. Now, of course, I don't believe that he has any control over it, but he sits there and defends it because that's his job. So he's an apologist at the very least for the murder of women and children. And he's going to go and defend... Uh, Gay rights, that's what he's going to hang his hat on. That's, that's what he's all about. You're right. I mean, like I said, people don't think, can't think, uh, and, you know, we're all screwed. And, <laughs> and, and he is not, he's not black and white. We're not saying that Putin is an angel. We're saying that Obama, Cameron, and others are evil puppets. That's a fact. And Putin, uh, he may be a bit less evil than them, but of course, he has agendas. He used propaganda. Mm-hmm. He used medias. <laughs> the thing is, the game. The thing is, it's it's twenty years or more since Russia, more or less, entered the Western fold. Mm-hmm. It's been subject to the same cultural norms that the West has. In the West, nobody blinks an eyelid when a six-year-old is dressed up and sexualized and put in a pop song. Eh, yeah, but it's just fun, you know. And then when shit happens, well, they don't, they pretend not to see the connection between sexualizing their children and it actually happening to them. And Russia has been subject to the same crass degradation of culture. Now, I want to throw this out there. Putin at least trying to arrest that, reverse it, ameliorate it somehow with this at least making a, a policy stance, if not actually making a, an effective law. We'll see how effective it is, but is he at least making a statement that, look, let's just think about the kids for a second here. Yeah, I think uh, you, to be a leader, such a leader, you need ambition, you need some recklessness, you need some manipulations, some lies, all the things. It doesn't mean that you will enjoy torturing populations overseas that you will enjoy <clears throat> spreading pedophilia or things like that. There are grades of evilness and grades, there are different levels. You know, I have a guess Putin is not uh, willing or ready to uh, embrace all the full degradation of society at every level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean he's an angel at all. No, something else that people are bashing Russia with is they're financing all of the games. Like I said, 51 billion, that's the most expensive games ever for, for, for winter games. And summer? And summer. Um, oh, well, he could get things done because Russia is so corrupt and crony capitalism and, you know, it's just ruled by oligarchs. And yeah, so is everywhere. Of course. So is everywhere. That is the default. But 
when you look back at some of the things Putin's done and not done, he did not take advantage of the war on terror like he could have. He has not invaded any other country, then forced to react militarily mm-hmm. on at least two occasions. And I'm just wondering, what sets him apart from, let's say, the psychopathic elites in the U.S. and U.K., where they've no compunction with lying through their teeth to bomb the crap out of a country 8,000 miles away to get what they want? And you talk about graduations of evilness, but can we go the other way and suggest that Putin may not be a psychopath? It's it's hard to know, you know. I mean, the one thing that you can say about, well, there's a possible, it's possible that you can say that uh, there's some differences between Russia um, and Putin, let's say, as a leader of Russia and the rest of the world, i.e. the West, um, because they are apparently at loggerheads and, you know, in conflict. You know, they're, they don't agree with each other and they publicly try to attack each other. Now, the question is, do you want to go into deeper conspiracy and say this is all a show, that they're doing it simply to keep the people distracted, you know, have this kind of phony opposition type thing and is Putin playing that role? And, and both levels might coexist, actually, on minor levels, minor affairs, Olympic Games, economic stuff, yeah. some... Uh, Insignificant stuff. Yeah. There might be genuine opposition because those players might not be aware of the whole context and some other behind the same levels, it might be indeed a kind of a one world government where there's not much uh, divisions. Maybe. So just to say that uh, it's not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Well, per- personally, I don't see anything that Putin's doing uh, as having any real effect. Uh, I, don't think any- I don't see anything that he's saying as really, um, you know, serving the people of the world in terms of the truth and exposing lies. He simply... What about um, Syria? Well, he hasn't said anything. Well, he has said... Well, they've made intimations and, you know, they've intimated certain things and they've... They, they, but they haven't... But when the Syria opposite, would long since have been bombed if Russia had not been by its side. Well, exactly, yeah. But Syria has been destroyed anyway. Well, the bombing wouldn't have made much difference, really. And it's just prolonging it. In that sense, Putin is simply uh, um, taking care of his own interests, the interests of Russia and his own interests as he sees them as uh, as they are, you know. So, um, But in terms of actually standing as some kind of a real opposition against the, the evil that has taken over this world in the form of psychopaths in power, I don't see him really spelling any any home truths out to people on a regular basis in the way that he, that he could. And that suggests to me that, you know, either he doesn't want to do that because it's not in his interest, therefore he's not really a good guy, or he, he or, and in the same way he's not allowed to or he's not able to because he realizes he would quickly uh, find himself out of a job. I don't know. I hear, I hear a lot of home truths coming out of Russia today. The international media channel he set up. Yeah. Well, maybe in that sense. RT America says things that Americans would not otherwise hear, unless they came through bloggers who were paying attention. 
Yeah, RT does say quite a lot of stuff that that is true, and um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Okay, I'm not prepared to. Okay, the jury's out. I'm not prepared to. No, this obviously isn't good, bad, black, white. I'm just trying to tease out the issues here because, okay, on the one hand, he does not do anything, maybe in the positive. But what do you expect him to do? Raise an army and go after the U.S.? Of course not. But strategically. If you look at the series of things that happened, um, the attack through Georgia, the getting missile sites all along Eastern Europe, allegedly to protect Europe from Iran, but Russia knew what that was really about. Um, The propaganda um, we've discussed already, and of course, Ukraine. Mm. It's going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. I do not think it's completely just coincidence that Ukraine has blown up right now. You know, while the social games are going on. Mm, no. Well, yeah. No, not really. No, I mean, I'm not sure if it's directly linked, but yeah, maybe it was opportune to to start it. I mean, it started last November or something. You know, uh, right around the time. I mean. John McCain and who else was it? Somebody along with John McCain were there, you know, giving their support to the uh, to the protesters late last year, uh, and that he was that was a sign that you know who was behind the protesters, essentially, who had financed them, you know, in the sense that sure, Ukrainian people had kind of legitimate grievances, but they were stirred up and given form and given you know. The, the power and the, the impetus to actually do what they did, which was have these pretty spectacular uh, protests, uh, and the Ukrainian government was largely, com- you know, compared to what would happen in other countries, the Ukrainian uh, government was um, was very uh, restrained, mm. you know, in that sense. Um, Angela Merkel is the, the second leader that visited Ukraine. Yeah, the, the German politician. Yeah, but. You know, and in in that sense, maybe uh, the Ukrainian president saw the writing on the wall type of thing that this was um, this was essentially being funded and you know inspired by the by the West, by Western uh, powers, specifically maybe the CIA and their different uh, funding organizations that that make these things happen. And uh, the Ukrainian government probably realized that. Well, if, listen, if we this is bad enough, but we just have to kind of sit back and take it. And you saw that. The police really did, were obviously under orders to not go too far um, in terms of responding to it, and they didn't really do very much at all. And the protesters really did make a mess of yeah. of Kiev, you know. And um, that because he maybe understood that, you know, if he was to crack down really hard on it, that would just be giving them exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. You are totally untenable. You're not. You're no longer legitimate, you know, because what you're doing to these poor people, you know, uh, these protesters protesting for their for their uh, for their rights and for you know for freedom and for you know new government and stuff like the the thing that the U.S. has stood against and Brits have stood against for centuries, Brits for centuries, the U.S. for uh, a whole of the 20th century have stood against and have actively all around the world stopped people from protesting in various countries where the U.S. or the Brits had a strategic or national security interest, i.e., strategic interests. They actively put down uh, 
by directly or by proxies put down the same kind of protests that are happening in, in, in Ukraine uh, yeah. because it wasn't in their interest because they didn't want the people to they didn't want a change of leadership but now they want a change of leadership because the uh, the, the, uh, the president <coughs> Yanukovych uh, is um, he basically decided to throw his lot in with, with, with Russia uh, Putin offered him 15 billion to sort out the financial issues, and he was more or less willing to take it. And I mean, this was known in the West beforehand. They could see where they're keeping the tabs on. They know where it was going. They don't want that to happen. They want Ukraine to be part of uh, the EU, to be part of the EU, which is basically is NATO, part, which is part of NATO, which is part of the US, basically a part of the American Empire. So um, they stirred up these. These protests and it's it's a kind of uh, it's not it's a bit complex. It's not so black and white because obviously no. the Ukrainian people did ha- well, Ukrainian people don't want to be part of any kind of a Russian federation or any kind of closer ties with Russia because they have a history uh, under uh, as being part of the Soviet Union. And they, they have bad memories and stuff, and they don't yeah. want that, and they see that. But uh, so it's a difficult position for them to be in. But if if they could understand uh, really what the what the choice was. And where it would go, I think, if they could see down the line, where they they choose, they eventually get rid of the current president who's pro-Russia and go with U.S. EU NATO. Uh, if they could see where that would go, where that would lead them in a few years, uh, I think they would regret having made that decision. And hopefully, this kind of a little maneuver that the Russians did recently in releasing a an audio of a discussion. Do we know which was the Russians? Well, it was pretty much obviously the Russians. I mean, who else would have done it? You know? Well, it could have been Julian Assange. Yeah, it was Julian Assange, yeah. He, he flew in. Tell us, what's this about? Well, it's just, uh, it was, it's about four minutes of an audio um, of a conversation, telephone conversation, between the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, uh, i.e. the American Empire's uh, woman on the spot in Europe to make sure the empire goes the way they want it to. Uh, her name is Victoria Newland, and it was a conversation between her and the American ambassador in Ukraine, Jeffrey Payat. Um, before we just get into that, I'm going to check here to see if we have a call or if we have another listener. Hi, do we have a caller, or are you just listening? Actually, I'm a caller. <laughs> okay, what's your name? Uh, Where are you calling from? Uh, Chris from Oklahoma. Hey, Chris, what's uh, your question? Actually, it's more of a comment, actually. Um, pardon my voice, just coming over really nasty cold. Um, no worries. You're talking about um, uh, gay rights, homosexuality, stuff like that. It's a really good topic. Um, my comment is is that it just seems to me like these are one of those uh, socially hard topics to really conceptualize because of ideological slash emotional arguments. They kind of muddy mm-hmm. the waters. Yeah, um, of course. That's your right, in, in my opinion, I think this is a, this you know taking the gay uh, rights thing is merely a symptom of a larger phenomenon. And what I find is interesting, if you really look at it, all these different things like abortion, uh, gay rights, um, all of them, all sides, whichever one you're with, either either side of the opposition, um, the end result is always either the enacting of some law or some uh, social moral rule that uh, ends up restricting individual choice. In some way, on, mm-hmm. on one side or the other, the end result of both opposition is 
always to restrict the choice of the individual. Um, I don't know, it just seems like it's, uh, I don't know if they're in cahoots or whatever, but it seems to be like some sort of anti-instinctual normalcy by Mm -hmm. uh, sort of like rewriting our cultural genetic code, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Wipe away any kind of instinctual normalcy. It's like... Everybody knows everyone's got a right to self-defense. I mean, it's, it's just, we, we feel it's, it's right. But mm-hmm. in the sense of self-defense, you go into this sort of um, emotional argument. Well, you know, we, we suspect this guy next door is going to do something. Let's preempt it. Let's go after him. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We basically know self-defense is right, but that's not self-defense. But this sort of argument, this emotional argument, um, muddies the water. and It takes like a long time to really figure out your argument against that argument to have any kind of uh, um, rational stance, you know what I mean, to figure out what's really going on. It's just, mm-hmm. And it seems like this is just a part of it. Everything is all money. Nobody knows what to think. So society itself just seems to be falling apart all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen this same... I've had these same kind of thoughts with respect to the whole... Uh, pro and anti-smoking issue. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, smoking is bad, smoking is bad. Yeah, well, at least 25% of the population is still going, okay, whatever, but just leave me be. And, of course, what it comes down to is the person's own individual choice. But Right. But Which is in what getting you do with abortion. It's like, you know, are you anti yeah. or whatever abortion? Then you hear on one side, I mean, I, I would find it very difficult to have to for any reason to abort a child, you know, or, uh, or even a, not a woman, but if, as a, if I was a woman, I find it very, very difficult to ever have an abortion. It would be just a very emotionally hard thing. Even if you knew the child wasn't going to survive, it's like, well, I just want to give it that chance. I could go, so you have this emotional argument. But the fact of the matter is, why are we trying to take the choice away from individuals? Why, what is the business exactly. of ours to do so? Why is it, why you, why is it making it yeah. something society has to decide on for everybody. Bad things have the government, the state, cannot fix anything. It doesn't ever fix anything. So why do we keep giving them the power to fix things when it never works anyway? But it's always restricting the choice of individuals. That's the end of the right, the left, the, the pro, the anti. It always goes back to restricting choice. That, that's very true, Chris. <clears throat> there might be something else to do some what I call the artificial division about uh, not existing uh, conflict or minor conflict. You see how those uh, pro versus gay, uh, heterosexual versus homosexual, men versus woman, black versus white, Christian versus Muslim, all those divisions hysterize the people, divide the people, and divert the people from the only true division, us the people versus the psychopathic oligarchy, the psychopathic elite. It's, yeah. And I think if it's so exacerbated lately, this false, this fake division, it's because the elite, some of them are partly aware that pressure is growing amongst the people, anger is growing, so they have to direct this anger towards scapegoats, gays or whatever, or Muslims or whatever minority, to deflect the pressure from themselves because they are the real source 
and the legitimate source for this anger. Well, it also seems like it's even kind of beyond that at a higher level. I don't know if you want to call it a spiritual level or a, I don't really know what you want to call it, but honestly, it seems like it's at a higher level. And however it, it comes through um, in our reality, it just seems like everything is uh, anti um, some sort of instinctual normalcy. You know what I'm saying? It's like that's what we—that's how we've survived for however many million years, or hundreds of thousands of years, forty thousand years. Um, every, everything that is in our culture, everything that, that we think, everything that we do, that we don't quite rationalize, comes from the same. Um, I, uh, Conrad Lawrence put it: um, instinct. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, we can interpret instinct wrongly. You know, you get an instinct for something, you give an interpretation, and you and you. You can uh, get it wrong, but my point is, is that most normal people know that it's not right just to have a war, you know, go into someone else's country and invade that country and, and kill people and so forth and so on. So it's justified by a, a self-defense. Um, we know that it's not normal for homosexuals. You know, that's not the, the norm. You people, you know, heterosexuals have children. That's how the species propagates. And, and, and most people don't have a problem with that. Same thing with abortions. Um, sometimes it's good to abort. That's a people's choice and so forth and so on. Um, these things are made into problems where you have to take a side because of emotional mm-hmm. manipulation. You know what I mean? And exactly. as a normal person, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm not a normal person, I don't know, but I mean, I think I am. Um, I don't, you know, it takes so long to really, really ponder these arguments. Because on one side you have emotionalism attacking you from one side. On the other side, like a, a, a perfect one, like I said before, abortion is a really good one. The emotionalism of putting yourself into, um, do you, a perfect example is, do you pr- propose, are, are you an advocate for killing children? You know what I mean? That's a horrible thing mm-hmm. to put yourself into, that, 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 that type of thing. Or are you anti-gay? Do you hate people because they love somebody else? And these are really, really horrible um, uh, emotional things to put yourself into, you know. But it's yeah. the argument is is not what the argument that they're giving you is not true. It's not a real rational argument. It's mm-hmm. the manipulation, and yeah. everything is being done to to wipe out our instincts um, or to figure out what our instincts are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like for example, yeah. we know what's going on in the world is is bad. Something instinctively we know it; it's not good. But now to debate it, you know, rationally and logically, well, it's this, well, it's that, and, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to be able to obtain the the facts, the um, you know, mm-hmm. all the knowledge that you need to to attack each point, point by point, to figure it out. But instinctively, yeah. we know that it's not good. Something bad is really going on here. Mm-hmm. And then everything yeah. that's, that's going out is, is, is confusing. Oh, don't listen to your instincts. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain there. Just go mm-hmm. along with it, you know. Oh, yeah, just, absolutely. It feels like something is something even higher than just psychopaths. It's almost like they're an easy conduit for uh, spiritual evil, if I can use yep. that word. You pretty much nailed it. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And psychopaths might be part of this conduit. And beyond instinct and I agree with with your analysis uh, Chris but beyond instinct I think 
human beings should try to rely on a, an objective assessment, not to fall in, into emotional thinking, into the trap, this elite are, are digging for us to fall in and try to assess objectively with a mind by collecting data, where is the truth and where are the lies, where are the manipulations, to understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the things that um, I was a couple, I don't really listen to the radio show uh, when you guys are airing uh, Sundays, I'm usually busy, but um, one of them, I can't remember which one it was, um, someone had made the comment about why do people need government, why do we need leaders or something like that. Uh-huh. I actually have a theory for that, and if I may, <laughs> yeah, um, it seems to me, this is just what it seems to me, and in fact, I got, I got a lot of this from, if you wanted to actually look it up, Conrad Lawrence's book, Behind the Mirror. Um, it's a really good book, um, but he points out in, in this book that in all biology and also into uh, human cultures, <clears throat> there's always a struggle between more freedom and restrictions on freedom. And what in human cultures, what it, the, the goal is to find a proper balance. This is pretty much what theory is, between more freedom and, and uh, restrictions upon that freedom. And what it seems to me, and I think this is true, and we, we are social creatures as human beings. Very few of us are, you know, isolationists. We just, you know, go off into the wilderness by ourselves. But we have to have some uh, uh, social context. It also seems to me that society, as human beings, because of our, our nature, our instincts, which have developed over hundreds of thousands of years, um, because of these instincts, we simply cannot live without society. Society is something that we, we strive for. Like it or hate it, that's what we, we need. Um, so we're at, but in order for societies to exist, you have to have some restrictions on freedom. But it doesn't have to be a whole lot depending on the size of the group. The larger the society, is what it seems to me, the more restrictions on freedom to keep it going. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the reasons why we're, we're ending, we're standing upon the precipice, so to speak, is because our societies have gotten increasingly large. Everything is about control of individual choice. Completely restrictive. Mm-hmm. If you had smaller communities that had more autonomy, they could come with a better semblance between restrictions on freedom and more freedom. They could find a, a balance that works for them. And the fact of the matter is what, what, what works for one group is not going to work for another. It's just not. I mean, as a, as a human species, we have a lot of variability. We can't, there are people that I know in my own family that honestly could never live with. You know what I mean? Just don't get along. No real reason, just no specific reason. I just can't quite not going to work out so Mm. but that's the way human beings are we all cannot live together under the same uh culture so to speak or something like that and i think that we've progressively gotten uh away from smaller communities where we can uh have more choice uh, more freedom and and stuff like this and it works and everything's become one size fits all that's kind of my theory not, not, well, the details aren't worked out. It's just sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, I think. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think there are a lot of, a lot of research, a lot of theorists, academics, through the decades would agree with you. Mm-hmm. 
um, this is what they keep coming back to. Yeah. All right, Chris. Thanks for your uh, thanks for your call and your comments. Thank hey, you. No problem. Good job. Thanks. For yeah. Support. Thanks a lot. Oh, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. He's uh, some very good comments there. Hang on a second. Now we might have. A, I think we have another call here. Wow. Hi. Do we have another call on the line? Hello, caller. Are you calling? Or are you listening? Uh, it might be a, might be a listener. Let's go with listener. So let's go with listener. On that one. This this core problem of choice and the restriction of choice. Um, that's that's all it comes down to. The the smoking issue I raise. Look, your government doesn't give a damn <laughs> about your health, and they demonstrate that by their actions in every other way. Control. Mm-hmm. They want once. I think it was Laura's who put it this way. Once you accepted something as innocuous, it seemed, as a smoking ban, that's it. You know, you, rapidly, one after the other, things start to fall. But you accept this bind on your own choice. Well, if, if you're not a smoker, and you know, well, it doesn't concern me, you accept having a bind on others who do choose to smoke. And it comes back rapidly to you in all of the other issues that do directly affect you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the beginning, they came for the communist, and I did nothing. Yes. Then they came for the unionist, and I did nothing. Then they came for the Jews, and I did nothing. And then they came for me, and there was nobody to stand for me. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah the smoking thing is ridiculous, you know, and it's just like shit. It's about getting people to uh, submit to government dictates on, on, in a never finer way on the minutia of their lives. And also, the government knows best, and government takes care of us. Government is interested in our health, and uh, you know, and then getting people to be basically um, enforcers of government policy on other members of, of, of society. So it's pretty horrible. Um, getting back to what we were talking about before, Chris was on the line there. Um, the revolution in Ukraine. Yeah, it was interesting because it exposed this call between the Assistant Secretary of State in the U.S. and uh, Ukrainian, or the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. Um, his name's Jeffrey Pratt. No, sorry, Piat. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's P-Y-A-T-T. It should be P-R-A-T-T. He's just such a pain pusher, you know, like most of them. They're idiots, you know. These people are idiots. Uh, I mean, they're smart in a certain way, but they're just... I like to call them idiots because... I don't like them. Um, <laughs> but they are idiotic in a certain way, uh, and I like to see them exposed. Um, we'll just, people may have listened to it already, but we'll just play a little bit of this tape telephone conversation between these two where they were talking about uh, Ukraine and who should be in power in Ukraine, a sovereign country. Um, and this was supposedly released. Uh, well, we, we presume it was released by some fact, someone within the, the, the Russian government because it served their interests. Uh, most particularly. What do you think? Uh, I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as Deputy Prime Minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now, so we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up, is exactly the one you made to, to Yachts, and I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario, and I'm very glad he said what he said in response. 
Good. So uh, I don't think cleats should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm I, kinda... I, I, just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I, think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. Good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step? My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting and that Yats was going to offer in that context a three-way, you know, three-plus-one conversation or three-plus-two with you. Is that not how you understood it? No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed, but I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, – Klitschko has been the top dog. He's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got, and he's probably talking to his guys at this point. So I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the personality management among the three, and it, and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it, behind it before they all sit down and he, um, he explains why he doesn't like it. Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after? Okay, will do. Thanks. Okay, I've now written, oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. I can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the U.N. guy, Robert Seri. Did I write you that this morning? Yeah, I saw that. He's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And, again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych did that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now, and I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko, and if you can just keep, I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych, but we can probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden, and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. Okay, great. All right. Thanks. Attaboy Biden. What's an attaboy? An attaboy is, you know, attaboy Joe Biden. Uh, get in there and, you know, provide the international presence for, you know, this is, you know, Hands across the ocean, this is all good, we're going to do it, you know, uh, get the media in and stuff. That was just for people who maybe weren't, uh, aren't aware of it. That uh, was a conversation, leaked telephone conversation. 
between the U.S. ambassador uh, in Ukraine and the U.S. <coughs> Assistant Secretary of State. And they were basically talking about how they were going to form the next Ukrainian government. Uh, the little detail of the fact that there be already being a Ukrainian government in place with the Ukrainian president didn't seem to matter that much. They were just going to go ahead and um, use the crisis to and, and, and push it through and get the deets, the details uh, fixed on it, you know, as in how they want it to be. And of course, the three people that they're pushing, and they're not really pushing three people, um, one of them is Vitaly Klitschko, uh, who um, is a Ukrainian. He was a, he's a former hev- super heavyweight champion boxer. He was extremely successful. He's now in Ukrainian politics. Um, there's another guy, the guy they call Yats. He's uh, Yatsenyuk. He's a kind of an, an economist pen pusher type thing, and that's who they prefer uh, to be uh, the new president. And um, <clears throat> and the third guy was Ole Tanibok, and they call him Tanibok. So these three people, Klitschko, Yatsenyuk, and uh, Tanibok are in the opposition, essentially, but in different kind of uh, factions of the opposition against uh, against the current president who is siding with Russia. And, of course, that means that those two people are the U.S. like them. Although, as you notice, the Assistant Secretary of State, uh, Newland, there said that she did, even if it's misguided, um, because he is anti-Russian as well. She said, well, we don't, well, I don't think he'd be good in there. He's just... Okay, we're back on. Sorry about that little... That was Blog Talk Radio again. Send them hate mail. Um, so, we... Yeah, these three guys. Klitschko, who is the most popular guy in the, in the opposition, who's pro, pro-Europe, pro anti-Russian, they didn't... The Assistant Secretary of State and the US, the U.S. government doesn't like him. Even though the Ukrainian people like him, we don't like him. I don't think we want to put him out so he can do his political homework. As in, grow up, young boy. This guy could, you know... He's probably the, he's probably the best choice in that sense. Um, the other guy is an economist, uh, would be a kind of World Bank kind of guy, you know what I mean? So that, that's their favorite, obviously, because they can, you know, he'd be most, he's a very pro-West, <clears throat> Western educated, his wife lives, or his... He'd know what side <clears throat> red is buttered on. Yeah, and the, the third guy, Tani Buck, that they keep talking about, who who they didn't have a problem with, Tani Buck is a, is a far-right um, uh, Ukrainian, kind of, he's... Uh, I'll give you an example of a couple of things he said. He said um, back in 2004, <clears throat> uh, talking to the people that he was, you know, his supporters, he said, you, my supporters and uh, members of my party, are the ones that the Moscow Jewish mafia ruling Ukraine fears the most. And he also said, they were not afraid and we should not be afraid. They took their automatic guns on their necks and went into the woods and fought against the Moscali, the Germans, the Kikes and other scum who wanted to take away our Ukrainian state. This guy's like a, he's a bit of a racist and a, a right-winger type thing, you know, extremist. And But he's, as far as the U.S. is concerned, he's cool. We want him in. But not uh, Klitschko. Because Klitschko is seen as being, probably being more independent-oriented. He doesn't want to be part of a Russian Federation, but he doesn't necessarily want to saddle up with the Americans as well. So they don't like him. Get him out. So, uh, and you notice at the start with it where, uh, where the ambassador said, uh, we're, we're looking at, he's having some uh, marital problems, 
and we're kind of looking at that. I mean, you know, you could interpret that in a few different ways, but the most obvious way to interpret it is that they could smear him. Yeah, yeah and, and, the, and the way they would, she suggested they arrange their phone calls one way, and he counter-proposed the ambassador because he said she'd be able to handle the, the personality issues or something like that. Mm. And what it made me think of was that the way, I don't know to what extent it's um, structured, in how they do these things, or if it's just an intuitive to, to a psychopathic mindset that, okay, you handle this guy, you handle this, because you will have a better working of how to work on that person. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's outrageous, but at the same time, it's just well, it's, confirmation it's, of what of we already works. know. Yeah. Exactly, and this is freedom and democracy, right? This is the, great, the world's greatest democracy, you know, mm-hmm. basically deciding for the Ukrainian people, a massive, a very large country, deciding for these people who will be their leaders based on the U.S. government's interests. Um, Coup d'etat 101. Exactly. And, you know, and, and when she said that, made that comment, you know, F the, F the EU, she's just like being dismissive of the EU. EU. And that's, in this story, that in the media is what got most attention. And <laughs> she had to, apparently she apologized. And Angela Merkel said, it's not acceptable. Well, it's not acceptable to say that thing in a private conversation. Well, you know, say, I'm sure it happens all the time, but obviously it's, it's what they have to say. You know, we have to defend Angela Merkel, has to defend the EU, they diss the EU and stuff. And it's kind of ridiculous, you know. But uh, she has nothing to say for... But not a word about the, the fact of what the actual the, the call shows very clearly is that the US is basically interfering in the most intimate way in a foreign, supposedly sovereign country, thousands of miles away, they're deciding who the government will be based on the U.S.'s interests, which are definitely not the interests of the Ukrainian people. And they're, they're deciding. And this is, the, this is the, the country, the big, the major country in the world that promotes the idea of democracy, mm-hmm. i.e. the choice of the people. Mm-hmm. Right? And they're, they're dissing. They're like, not this guy, this guy, no, not this guy, maybe this guy. Yeah, we like him. He's an extremist. We'll do go with him. This modern guy, we don't like him. Get out. I like the, uh, the role that was given to the UN as well. Oh, like yeah. Ban Ki-moon was the convenient puppet exactly. that would give the veneer of uh, worldwide or international legitimacy exactly, to the change. Which is what UN yeah. serves for, for these days. Yeah. These days. That's what's been reduced to. It's a Bank. joke. Ban Ki-moon. This guy... So... Putin says, look, can we just make peace on this whole gay rights thing and just get on with the Olympics in the spirit of international cooperation and peace? <laughs> and today, Ban Ki-moon makes a statement, you know, about, oh, trust Russia. You know, right, right at the start of, of the Olympics, it's supposed to be you know, a flagship peace program, effectively, for the UN, you know, something they should be promoting in the interest of peace. He's, he's such a yeah, so, lackey. So what's going on here, apparently, I mean, just on the face of it, is that if you look at the rest of the world, there is no other, there is no independent country in no. this world that even is making a show of being uh, kind of against the West. You know, China, which makes up like about 15% of the world's population or more maybe these days, uh, is basically the factory for largely the West. They're the, they're the workers, right? There's like, you know, a billion Chinese workers there who are just producing plastic crap for the rest of the world. Um, 
all of Southeast Asia, the rest of it are all just client states and have been since the Second World War and since the Vietnam War and stuff, since the latter half of the 20th century. Australia is insignificant. I'm sorry, students listening, but you're insignificant. You're only 20 million people, and it's you're a CIA listening post. Basically, yeah, it's pine, pine you're still a you're still a British colony, basically. So you're an Olympian with the Brits. The Brits are the Americans. The Brits are the forefathers of the Americans. You know, the, uh, genetically and ideologically, uh, America is the horrible psychopathic child of British elite. Uh, South America was destroyed in the 20th century as well. It was was um, rendered uh, ineffective in any, even despite its size, because of dozens of CIA coups in that country and control of that of that continent. Um, Africa, the same, but even going back further, was never allowed to develop. It's mm-hmm. such a big place as well. It was more easy to uh, control it in a sense. You didn't have so many people concentrated. You know, way back when you didn't have people concentrated into, and, and obviously they were used as slaves, etc. So, I mean, Africa was, you know, for various reasons, but, you know, largely because it was uh, colonized and, and kept around. So, so what have you got left? The Middle East is a war zone uh, and, and ruled by Saudi Arabia on behalf of the U.S. and the West. Um, <clears throat> the only Israel. thing... Israel. Well, not getting on that. There's a French minister who described it pretty well several years ago. <laughs> Look it up. Uh, so the only thing left is Russia. And the question is, why is Russia even making a show of opposing uh, well, this basically global empire, this one world government that we essentially have, uh, in the sense economically and through banking, it is hmm. essentially all locked down. So why is Russia not playing ball? Why are they not in there? Why not just, are they the last, I mean, is it is it just for show or... I mean, it doesn't seem to be. On the face of it, it seems to be that there is some antagonism and disagreement and they're not playing ball in some way with the West and the West wants to, um, you know, slowly uh, corral them in. I mean, Ukraine would be a major, pretty major coup uh, to steal Ukraine away from Russia's sphere of influence and put it into the West's sphere of influence. They have a client government in there, as we've just heard. And that would leave Russia fairly isolated. Um, and the Russians don't want that. Putin doesn't want that. He, he's going to, you know, fight his corner type of thing. You know, if and when he can, do whatever he can. And that's part of the reason the Russians released this tape was to strike a blow against and try and, you know, sway public opinion back the other way. You know, and I mean, it's fair dues. You know, they've been crashing Russia over these Olympic Games and for for a decade uh, in all sorts of different ways. Well, most of it's false. And, you know, so the Russians respond in kind when they get a chance, and that was to release this tape showing exactly what's going on in Ukraine and see if they can sway public opinion back the other direction or at least mitigate the kind of negative press that they're being subjected to by, by the West. Um, but the question is why? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the mechanism is behind it. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. Is it? I don't think it'll last very long. I mean, I think once Putin's gone, maybe that'll be the end of it. Uh, it's like the last domino to fall, really. Maybe. But Russia's been in this position for a long time. Yeah. You know, for all the evil that Soviet Russia ended up doing, 
it struck out when the revolution happened to I me, mean, it was striking out against a world that was made up of small empires. Struck out for a different way. Of course, in the end, it was subverted back to effectively the same thing, an oligarchic control system. And yet, for all the damage it did, it did it to its own people. Mm-hmm. It slaughtered its own people. It didn't actually invade other countries. There, I wonder if there's something about... Is there something fundamental where the difference between the Anglo-Saxon U.S. and the European too, Western European mindset that they are absolutely determined to control everything? Uh, they fail a lot of the time, but they keep going. They keep going. Mm-hmm. This pathological drive that seems to be in some way mitigated in Russia, in Russians. Um, it may be just a hangover from, like you said, they've been out for a long time in the sense that they've been, you know, the, the the chief enemy of the West for, you know, most of the most of the twenty most latter half of the twentieth century. Uh, you know, so it's hard to kind of come back from that, and maybe that in some way that just in, in installed itself um, in, in Russian mentality and the Russian mind, and it's not so easy to to yeah. suddenly after nineteen ninety when it falls and you have the breakup of the Soviet Union. You know, it's hard to get rid of that, even if it's a manufactured kind of opposition in a certain sense. It was real in a certain sense, but not in the way the communist threat, the way the Americans presented it. And it's maybe not so easy just to, to wipe that all away and have the, you know, maybe they created an opposition there by using the Soviet Union for so long as this horrible red menace that was going to take over the, the freedom-loving people of the world. Uh, but- but the red menace isn't there anymore, so now they desperately try to paint it as a menace in other ways, in in, in ways that are pathetic, because they're irrelevant issues. Yeah. You know, oh, the toilet didn't work in Sochi. You know, any there's like this desperate scrambling to get a dig in. <clears throat> I think uh, Russia succeeded. I mean, the place was destroyed after 1990. Mm. Economic shock. Economic yeah. shock therapy. Yeah. Um, decimated Russia. The population shrank. Yep. And now unemployment in the U.S. is what? The real rate of unemployment is about 35%. In Russia, it's 6%. I wonder if there's some part of that pathological vehemence comes from crap. Now the Russians are doing one better than us. They do the same things as us. I mean, it's still a, it's still a system where there are elites and they do well themselves first and foremost yeah i think but in the process putin is actually popular can you imagine a u.s president with 60 percent popularity rating consistently also has there ever been one historically you have few and fine between you have national leaders that pop up for various reasons i don't know if it's kind of higher order cosmic balance once in a while, you have a non-fully-blown psychopath that managed to get uh, the lead of a country. <clears throat> Maybe because of the cultural substratum of the of the nation, of the people. Maybe, and all because of the complex, very complexion of the leader. Maybe Putin is one of those uh, few examples of not a totally psychopathic leader. Yeah. That's why he sticks out so much. Well, the what headlines... Headlines are all about Ukraine, but who in the West knows that for the last year at least, 
there have been serious riots and protests in the next country over in Bulgaria, a member of the European Union. Mm-hmm. People are setting themselves on fire in Bulgaria. It's not bad. In Greece, in Italy, in France, uh, the popular uproar is, uh, is spreading everywhere. But the, the leaders of those nations are not bashed. Speaking of revolution in La France, uh, yeah. something's going on here. It's been brewing for a while. It's, um, it's in marked contrast to you know, bloody street battles in Ukraine. And it's, it's a rather funny form of revolt. Yeah, it's quite different, quite opposite to what is going on in Ukraine, where it's uh, at least partly manufactured uh, people uproar and rebellion. Where, to be quick, because we don't have much time left, there's been three uh, different, three different manif- demonstrations, mass, mass demonstrations in France. Was, one was the Red Hat people, Brittany, because of a new tax uh, project. During this demonstration, you had a lot of different population together under the same banner against the government, basically. You had uh, small business managers, you had uh, independent workers, you had unemployed people, you had employees trying to defend their rights. Interestingly, this movement was bashed by the unions, who are usually the organizers of the demonstration. The unions pointed the finger of the movement, saying, uh, it should not happen, it was bad, it was not the right timing. And historically in France, I mean for decades and in other countries, unions are part of the oligarchy. It's a tool, infiltrated tool that is aiming to control popular movements, demonstration in particular, which sometimes are the, the first step of uh, more global popular movements. Then you have a second um, demonstration that was against the, the president, and um, where you had all kind of population again. Uh, so, um, students, retired people, employees, everybody criticizing the government, the abuses, the loss of rights, the loss of uh, purchase power. And uh, a lot of them mentioning Dieudonné and the canal. We, we talk about it uh, soon. And a third demonstration was against the new laws that were passed and that were going to be passed about the gender theory, about uh, additional gay rights. Uh, it mobilized like 500,000 people. According to the organizers, the police said there were 18,000. Yeah. According to the organizer, half a million. So you have three different demonstrations, mass demonstrations, where for the first time since a long time, you have very different populations, subgroups, that transcend their differences and demonstrate for their rights, or some rights, against the government, against the elite. And in those three cases, you have a, another common denominator is the the recurring mention of Dieudonné. So we've talked about Dieudonné, a French comedian, very popular, very gifted, who has made something almost nobody has did before. He has called a spade a spade, and he has described the French nation as being ruled by an oligarchic 
Zionist financial that basically destroys the country. And uh, he's becoming, not voluntarily, I don't think it was his plan, he's becoming kind of hero and people resonated, resonate with his humor, they resonate with his personality, and they resonate above with what he's saying. So he's a kind of powerful symbol that is transcending those divisions and that is inspiring people. And that uh, maybe the worst thing for the elite is that he's channeling all his growing anger towards the real culprit, the elites, and their abuses. And so, just to be clear on there, I mean, the whole, that, that Diodonne claims that the French government is uh, ruled by a Zionist, a Zionist elite, what he really means there, because he's of African descent and, and, and Muslim descent, what he means is that they're anti, they're, they're kind of, they're racist in a certain sense, they're pro, in the same way that the, that the Israelis are racist against Palestinians and racist against pretty much all Arabs and, and, uh, and Muslims and, and have been at the forefront of promoting this clash, this bogus clash of civilizations that has allowed <clears throat> the US and British and Western governments to you know, go around the world and bomb it and take possession of it. Uh, they, they have been, they've been, the Israelis have been kind of at the center of promoting that that ethos, that ideology, which has done so much damage and killed so many people and created such division amongst people in the world that in the same way they are, uh, that, that ideology in France um, applies in, in, in the government and it's anti-French, uh, uh, French Muslims or French um, people of North African descent, you know, uh, as Dieudonné is, you know. So he's not necessarily saying that, that, you know what I mean? Because we have to define what Zionist actually means. It doesn't mean that the people in the French government are all supporting, uh, the, you know, the expansion of Israel. Because that's what Zionism is. Zionism is, is a, Zion, a homeland for Israel and the, the, the Greater Israel, Israel Project. Greater Israel Project. That, that's not necessarily what it means. It, 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 it hasn't meant that for a long time. Well, there's several things. Um, so Alain Soral, a French philosopher, and you don't need this French comedian, have been pointing the figure Zionism, amongst other problems. Zionism is rampant in France. Zionism is not a, a religion, as we've stated previously. It's an ideology, political ideology, based on racism, basically. Zionism is not only present in Israel, it's also rampant in France. And most politicians, but more than that, most journalists are pro-Zionist. They're not necessarily Jews. There's a lot of Jews who are not Zionist. I mean, the best anti-Zionist activists are Jews, actually. And a lot of pro-Zionists are Christian, not Jew. Or even some Muslims are pro-Zionist. <clears throat> In any case, you said, you talk about anti-French. And what is interesting is, when you're trying to understand why such a dynamic, sure, there is a leader or two leaders, Soral and Yudone, but why are people resonating with that? And it seems that at the core of this deep popular dynamic are two factors. And ironically, those factors seem to come from the propaganda, what was put in the mind of the French population for generations. The French generation is a highly neurotic, highly depressed, very high suicide rate, 
because in mostly because I think the education system that is highly destructive. However, this education system put in the mind of French people two things. This intellectualism that can be obnoxious and destructive, but to some extent, French people, thanks to this destructful education system, still think to some extent. So they can analyze and understand partly what Soral is saying, what Judon is saying, and what the elites, and they discern what the elites are saying, and at the same time what they are doing, the discrepancies. So there is this receptivity and this capacity to think. And the second point is, you know, this myth, this mythos about French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity, you know, it had instilled in French mind this, the French arrogance, actually. The French are arrogant, and what, what, is, what is the core of their arrogance is this pride of being French, this pride about the country, France. I'm not saying it's legitimate or legitimate, but this arrogance is there. So very interestingly, today, most French people still can think a little bit and are animated by this pride or love of France and see that Dieudonné and Soa show that those elites, above all, Zionist, oligarchic, or whatever, they're facets, are corrupt. Anti-French. Mm. Anti-French. They are destroying France, mm -hmm. the very core of the pride of most French people. Mm. And, and, uh, and those ideals of equality, fraternity, and liberty, uh, essentially, theoretically, for all, uh, they're, they're infringing that, or they're, they're trashing that, they're standing on that, and that's what's being maybe evoked in a latent way in the French psyche type thing, and that's how, why they resonate with Judone. They don't necessarily resonate with Judone's uh, stance of uh, get, let's get rid of the Zionists and you know let's get rid of anti you know, uh, you know anti Israel or pro the ethnic minorities in France. But it's I mean because it's obviously not just the ethnic minorities in France that are that are coming out and protest. There's obviously there's white uh, Caucasian French people coming out and protesting as well, and they don't necessarily resonate with those things. The same things that the, the children of immigrants from North Africa resonate with. So there's more. A broad, all-encompassing ideology that Dioudonné uh, is, is is promoting, and it's essentially anti-establishment, anti-corruption, anti-elite. And yes. he should he should be more on a song on that. I think uh, I know he is to a large extent, but he's been he's been marginalised. They're trying to marginalise that part of his message and and focus on the the, the fact that he's anti-Israel and therefore anti-Semitic, and uh, you know because he's Muslim, he's an easy target for that. You know, um, he's he's not Muslim. Well, not even Muslim, but he's from. He, he's from secular. The, well, he comes from that background. He's brown. There. He comes from he, that he's background. He's from Cam. Well, his, his ancestors are from Cameroon. Yeah, yeah. but his mother's average. from Brit uh, Brittany, so <clears> his mother. Yeah. But you're right. The main message. That's why he's characterized. You know, the main message developed yeah. by Soral and by Dudonné is the anti-system message. Yeah. One of the numerous facets of the system in French of the elite is the pro-Zionist stance. One in several aspects. So it's been used, of course, and that's the same old story, equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm going to give you an example of how the lines of force are moving. Yeah. Alan Soran, <coughs> who, like Dudoné, are being harassed, so death threats, uh, they've been beaten, they're going through uh, six for one, eight for the other court cases, 
they are being uh, investigated by the tax people, tax authorities, and all kind of harassment you can uh, you can imagine. Their websites are being hacked, and uh, their stats on YouTube and uh, and Facebook are being uh, tweaked. All kind of everything possible. The house is being raided six times, etc., etc. Et In any case, at the end of a court case involving Soral and the JDL, the Jewish Defense League an organization that is considered a terrorist organization and banned in the U.S. and most countries in the world, I think it's legal and in France and in Israel. <clears throat> no, it's actually banned in Israel too. Oh, yeah. It's legal in Canada and France. Okay. So you can imagine the kind of people uh, participating in such organization. At the end of the court case opposing Soral and the uh, LDG. JDL. JDL. You have the supporters of the JDL who start to sing Isle Israel with a lot of policemen around. Then you have the supporters of Soral, who are more numerous. All kind of people, white, black, poor, unemployed, students, whatever, who start to sing the Marseillaise, the French anthem. And then the police, who were kind of hostile to the Soral people because they depicted as extreme right, anti-Semite, that's the usual attack in France. If anything is a, threatens the system, you label it extreme right because mm-hmm. it's been demonized for other reasons. We can develop another show for several decades now. And then the police start to support the Soval guys because they have this thing in common, this pro-French sentiment. And uh, right now that's where the lines of force are. Mm-hmm. In the most of the French people's mind, it's either you're pro-French or anti-French. And the media and the elites are trying to twist it in, whether you're anti-Semitic or pro-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Hang on a second here. Um, do we have a caller on the line? Yeah. Um, Hi. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Um, Hi, what's your name? I'm George. Um, yeah, Kent from West Virginia. Hey, Kent, how are you doing? Hey, Kent. Pretty good. I came in, uh, George, you talk about Dudenay. I've been following him uh, with a great deal of interest and. In, uh, but uh, I called in, um, you were talking, just taking you back, you were talking about Putin, and uh, mm-hmm. you touched on an idea that I had been wondering about, because um, how long, of course, I know they have this uh, constitution, and they went through this uh, process where uh, Medvedev and uh, Putin switched positions there once before, mm-hmm. and um, I'm wondering how long his term is and how I know I don't think he's still a pretty fairly young man. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of I would like him to um, be there as long as possible. Uh, so do you think he'll become so popular that it's possible that they could revise their constitution and change that feature? I know it's happened in other countries. Or do you think he'll just uh, be the Medvedev? two-step once once again, or I'd hate to think of um, a world without a counterbalancing figure like Putin. Well, um, in older times, actually not just in older times, somebody who at least thought he had a popularity made himself dictator for life. And you see, where they come from, they're used to this kind of thing. This whole democracy is great. Yeah, they kind of fell for that for a while, but the Russians got wise to that when they saw what happened to them in the 1990s. Um, yeah, I, I could easily see them just changing the constitution. Putin's in his first 
of his second pair of terms, if you want to think of it that way. I can easily see him being re-elected for a second term. And somewhere along the way, maybe they'll suggest changing the Constitution. But, you know, that's so... It's far off. It's still another 10 years away. Anything can happen between now and then. He could become unpopular. He makes a mistake and he's no longer there. What then will be the, the bulwark to keep Russia in its more or less successful defensive position. We'll see then if it's more of a cultural thing or if it was just Putin holding it all together. Um, I'd like to think that he thinks long-term enough to be thinking of a quote-unquote successor. Um, A lot will change between now and the world after Putin. Yeah, I think ultimately... um what will spell the end of Russia is when the West, uh, the US and the Brits, um, when enough time has passed for them to develop their kind of inroads or their infection into into Russia. Uh, they haven't been able to do that. They've been blocked. You know, they've tried to do it in a few occasions, but they haven't got anywhere like they have with other countries where they're able to essentially dictate who gets into power in any country. Uh, in Russia, maybe because it's because of the whole turmoil after the fall of the Soviet Union and the breakup of the of of, of the, the various countries, <clears throat> they haven't since then. They haven't been able to. They didn't get a foothold, and they weren't able to, you know, essentially colonize it uh, covertly. Uh, but when they are able to do that, um, and you know, stir people up for a revolution, let's say in Russia, um, that's when it, that's their modus operandi, and that's that's how and it works. It works and it has worked repeatedly. And when they're able to do that, I mean, that's that's like I said, that's the last domino that'll fall. I don't know if they'll be able to stop that from happening, but the rest of the world isn't doesn't really <clears throat> testify to anybody being able to hold out very long against that kind of a tactic, you know, where you essentially use the people of a foreign country to, you know, overthrow a government and install one that's that's more to your liking. Well, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I agree with you 100%. I know he had to, he uh, threw out some of these quote-unquote NGOs a while back and that sort of thing, so I know he's on guard for all this type of stuff. And I was wanting to ask you maybe another question. I know um, I think I detect a Dublin accent or there. Mm-hmm. I've been hearing about this guy, um, uh, Shatter, who is, um, you know, I've, I lived in Ireland decades ago for a little while, and I just happened to hear about him. He's been given some sort of a super um, super ministerial position or something. I don't know. What's the, what's going on with that? Uh, yeah, He's a minister of justice and minister of this and minister of that. It's a, it's a portfolio, three or four different portfolios all wound into one or something. Yeah, Al- Alan Shatter, his name is. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, we we to be honest. Uh, to be honest, we stay away from Irish politics. Well, largely. I mean, yeah, you did keep an eye on things. You did notice the accent, but um, we're not. Yeah, I actually do keep an eye on it, but I actually haven't uh, haven't read much about that. Is there is there something? Um, he's uh, he's Jewish. No, no. Yeah, uh, that's, well, that's well, that's what I've heard, and uh, uh, well, I just. Um, uh, I just I've, I've read a few things about it on the internet, and I thought, well, maybe uh, you were um, up to speed on it. But anyway, I guess I, I don't blame you. Want so I will shy away from it. So, all right. Yeah, well, well I, I'll let you get back. 
I'll, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll look into it now that you've piqued our interest. So, and maybe if there's if there's something on it, we'll uh, we'll we'll give a few minutes to it uh, next week, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. appreciate that. Thanks All right. a lot. Ken, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye bye. Alan Alan Shatter, he's Jewish. Yeah. I know there was a small community of Jews in Ireland, but <clears throat> well, they're fairly as in most places there. And this on the Jewish thing, just let's get this Jewish thing out because we talked about this recently. This isn't going to get us in trouble, is it? No. Okay, go. It's, you know, as the world turns, it goes through space. <coughs> the Jews do that. <laughs> no. As, as the world increasingly goes downhill, mm-hmm. and you have uh, social unrest, and you have the threat of major social unrest in terms of maybe food shortages and um, kind of climate change causing that, things going downhill on a global scale, uh, on a large scale in society. When people get uh, in that state of mind, there's a mob mentality. And like we were saying earlier in the show, um, people don't think very well. They're not, they've been prevented from thinking and from developing their thinking abilities for decades, centuries maybe. And if the prognosis for human society isn't very good and we suspect that there's going to be maybe some major upheaval on a social scale, with that mob mentality and the breakdown of law and order, let's say, um, very often what happens is, is that the people will turn on minorities in any given society. Uh, there are many minorities in various societies around the world and it's not their fault. They're simply minorities by victim of circumstance or colonialism or whatever. And in a lot of societies, they're not, you know, they're fairly well integrated, so maybe they're not really a distinct minority in that sense. They're, they're seen as, so they're protected in that sense. But there's one minority around the world and they're not very widely spread and it's the Jews. And they, for whatever, you know, not by their, the, an individual Jewish choice, but by, as a result of their ideology and their leaders and the way they've been directed throughout history, they have made themselves separate. They have consciously and sometimes vocally, well, always vocally, uh, um, <clears throat> express their difference from everybody else. Uh, they do it vocally, they do it subtly in different ways, but I mean, it's, most people have that understanding about Jewish communities that they're, that they're separate and apart. And that is largely as a result of the attitude and the approach and the beliefs of the Jewish, Jewish communities themselves. And so the point is, that's very dangerous. It's okay when things are okay in a society. You can do it and you can be in an sentence and you can be a, a special select group and you can have privileges and stuff like that. But when things go pear-shaped, it's the worst situation to be in. Mm-hmm. And it smacks of a self-fulfilling prophecy as well, given the Jewish history. I mean, and they've been manipulated by their leaders to, 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 to be in this position, to see themselves as separate and special <laughs> and chosen and all that kind of stuff. And it's terrible, because if there is, if the shit does hit the fan, there's a distinct possibility that they will be one of the few select groups that will be targeted, not because of any you know, grand conspiracy against the Jews by all the Gentiles, the Goys, but simply because that's what happens Histori- to minorities. Yeah. In Histor- a- historically, 
the Jews and also homosexuals are the first to be pushed down. Exactly. Uh, let, yeah. let me add something here. <clears throat> I don't think it's... Uh, if the mob turns against, against the elite in a kind of uh, civil war uprising, the elite is a very vague term. And they are... They might target, more likely, not the minorities per se, but the privileged minorities. And today, as a matter of fact, some minorities are overrepresented amongst the elites. Freemasons, gays, Jews. The same population that were targeted during the Second World War. So, indeed, if the mob falls into this frenzy, anger going after the elites, those privileged minorities might become targets. And that would be a very sad story because amongst Freemasons or Jews or gays, you have elite members and you have non-elite members. You have bad guys and you have good guys. But during this moment, there's not much space for discernment, reason, and uh, no, exactly. cold thinking, mm. you know? Um, and that's what is actually brewing in France, so we don't know what tomorrow holds, but clearly there are several indicators that we are not far away from a major, difficult-to-control, popular movement directed against the elites. Yeah. Well, um, well, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's going to be directed against the elites because the elites always escape, generally speaking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or at least, and especially in the technological elites, let's keep my, my point was that, you know, Jews having set themselves apart and in the popular kind of mind or in the, in the, in the general consensus is that they are separate, they're a, they're a distinct group and they, they do that very, uh, you know, deliberately and, and, and very uh, overtly so that a situation of mass uh, kind of uprising or chaos or unrest that it's the ordinary Jewish people who may well be the target of the of the of the ire of a of a hungry and desperate mob of people looking for a scapegoat and they may even be given them as a scapegoat yeah. to, to attack, you know. So the point is yeah. it's just such a it's a tragic kind of situation, you know, that ordinary Jewish people have been led into this situation. And like I said, it's not so bad and it hasn't been in a lot of uh, in good times it's fine. Uh but, and I'm not talking about the Second World War here because that was a kind of different kind of situation where, but again, it was minorities who were attacked in, in, mm. in Nazi Germany and people who were seen to be separate and different, you know? And the Jewish people have been manipulated into keeping themselves apart by their leaders when they shouldn't. And in the past, throughout history, at certain points they did kind of disperse and just become a, a French citizen or a British citizen or an American citizen. Um, but that was all after the Holocaust and... Um, after the Second World War that was taken back and they were, you know, we're special, look, we're attacked. And it's just such a horrible, self-fulfilling prophecy. And what I'm saying is that now in these current circumstances where there may be massive social unrest as a result of climate change, it's not a good position to be in. And um, it's true. In France, it's particularly a sensitive topic because of several historical factors. In any case, today anti-Zionism is one of the main political topics that is bringing all those people together in this demonstration and this uh, desire to, to change things. Why? Because um, 
Zionism is very present. In France, 1990, you have the law called the Gesso Law. That basically in this country you can discuss anything except the Holocaust. If you discuss the Holocaust, you might go to jail. It become today France is not a like country. A what country? Like secular. Okay. It's not a secular country. It's a religious country, and the religion is a Shoah, the Holocaust. It's gone this far. You have this Yodonet guy, one of the most popular personalities in France, who is bashed and almost destroyed because he dared. The beginning was not the tunnel, this anti-system movement. It all started a few years earlier when he dared doing a sketch where he was impersonating an Israeli colon. An Israeli settler? Settler, yes. He dared pointing the finger, the finger at the racist policy of Israel. All everything started. Yeah, so, and he was doing it. He was doing it in the form of a comedy sketch. It was of course, funny. It was truthful, but it was funny, and they didn't meant no harm. It didn't, no harm was. But it's taboo. Yeah, in you France, you, you cannot go there, and there is this sentiment. In addition, you have you have this discourse in France. In the schools. You keep having this teaching about the Shoah, the concentration camps, this kind of permanent reinforcement of the guilt in generations that, that were not even born during the Second World War. In a country, France, that is depicted as highly anti-Semitic and highly collaborative with the Nazi regime, although 75% of the Jews, French Jews, survived the Second World War as highest survival rate because French people were not giving away the Jewish uh, neighbors. Yeah. And you have Jewish kids, French Jewish kids, were still allowed to go to school during the Second World War. That's the only country with Denmark in Europe that didn't say, okay, Jewish kids are forbidden in school. And you had most kids, French kids, their school trips are school trips to uh, concentration camps. And also you have this, uh, this overuse of the guilt, of the memory of the, of the, the Holocaust. And at the same time, aimed at the, at the French population that is fundamentally not anti-Semitic and used by Zionist people. Zionist people, and so, so today, I think, to, to comment what Joe was saying, today and in the near future, one key point will be what will the Jew, Jewish people do or not do because they're instrumentalized. They're used by Zionists. You have all those French leaders, those Zionist or Israeli leaders, intellectuals in France, like Bernard Levy and Cohen and uh, Elisabeth Levy, etc., etc., who control many aspects of French political and economic and mediatic life. And who keep saying, look, anti-Semitism here and there and here and there. They create this sentiment of fear and hate. And they're the ones who push the French, the French Jews to go to Israel. They're not the ones who are going to Israel. And they're the ones <clears throat> who are historizing the population and they're the ones who are triggering this anger from the people. This anger is directed to the Zionist oligarchs. Mm-hmm. But in the end, the victims, as you say, Joe, it won't be those guys. They will escape. They will be the Jewish people. So the Jewish people today, first they are the only ones who have enough legitimacy to criticize Zionism. Because if you're not Jew and criticize Zionism, in France at least, Basically, you go to jail or you will be destroyed by the system. So they will 
called self-hating Jews, but they can still spread this message. So I think it's mostly in their hands. I think it's uh, maybe France has, in fact, been exceptionally tolerant of Jews. Of course. And of, yeah. Zion, of the political ideology of Zionism. It's been the most tolerant, but that's the country that is the most abused, but except Israel, but Zionist forces. Like we were saying before, the problem here is what, when you say the political ideology of Zionism, what are you talking about? Exactly. French people There's no do not uh, have a problem, as I understand it, do not have a problem with the fact that uh, pity and uh, remorse is extended to the Jewish people for the Holocaust. That's not something that I think most any white French people are, would complain about. Uh, they've passed a law where you're not allowed to criticize or you know, uh, question the Holocaust or unpublish any books on it, etc. I think most French people are happy with that. Why, why would you? Most people, French people accept that the Holocaust happened and that the Jews were persecuted by Hitler. Of course. So that's so the masses of French people, which is white French people, when they protest against the government or when they side with Judonet, they, uh, as, uh, my understanding is they cannot be that cannot be the prime motivator in in, in their in, in in their protests or in their siding with Judonet, because like I said, Judonet is very much popular with uh, primarily the the kind of Muslim and the minority communities in. In, in, I mean, they're his most ardent supporters because he talks so much about the Israelis and, and, and uh, Muslims in France identify very strongly with anybody who is anti-Israel and anti-Zionism. But what is Zionism? When you say Zionism in relation to Israel, you're talking about the way that the Israelis treat the Palestinians. And Muslims in France identify with uh, Muslims in Palestine because of the same religion. But what about the Catholic white French people who would be identifying with what Dutonet is saying. He's obviously saying more than just uh, the Zionists are in control of the French government. What, is, well, what does that even mean? And the point I'm getting at here is that Zionism is an ideology that is, is, my, is kind of today is used simply to, um, to back up the West's war on Islam, which is essentially a war of imperial expansion, uh, where, the, uh, where the rich, uh, the elite, continue to enrich themselves through colonial conquest and, uh, and ultimately to the detriment of the ordinary people in France. So for ordinary people in France, it must be uh, some other reason why they would get out in the street and do the, do the canal. Uh, and they, they, they see it as an anti-establishment, anti-elite, anti-corruption mm-hmm. symbol. And that's why they're willing to get out on the street, not because they feel, uh, you know, some kind of a close affinity with um, with the Palestinians, for example, or with what Israel is doing in Palestine. Maybe a lot of them would think that, well, you know, they have to have something no, else. That, that's right. But um, the way I perceive it from reading all those exchanges among supporters of Judean Sorali, that of course there are many reasons to be anti-system, anti-establishment. Zionism sticks out, though. It does. Not because uh, there is a strong solidarity perceived uh, amongst French people towards the oppressed Palestinian population, but because, legitimately or not, there is this feeling that what what they call Zionism is a 
this ideology that permeates a rather large percentage of the elite and that is anti-French. That's why I was giving this example of, ah. at the court. So, yeah. That's why it galvanized so much the French population and actually... In what way is Zionism anti-French? Anti like we're saying <coughs> later on, it's anti-liberty, equality and uh, fraternity. Uh, okay. Which uh, French I'm gonna, people... I'm, I'm gonna, you see, the French nation I'm gonna, after the revolution is built on that. that you're, you're, yeah. You are insulting yes. France when you insult what are actually universal concepts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to go there, but about the sociologic uh, composition of the Sudanese supporters. Actually, it's not... Uh, Muslim or North African young population that are the most represented. The most represented are the typical supporter of Zionism. So, all is white, is Christian, is French, is working as a student, is about 30 years old, is 20 or 30. Okay, so the point is, what are the? Why are those people supporting him? What is it that Zionism says that they support? If, if in the white French in, Catholics, in general, why, why they're not? They have no affinity to Palestinians in particular. No. So you said that they're anti that, that they identify with his anti-Zionist uh, stance. So the question is, what is Zionism? What within Zionism pisses off a white Catholic French person? Okay, two things. In general, they identify with the anti-establishment, anti-elite discourse. They agree with that, and they see some truth in it. And in particular, they resonate with the anti-Zionist discourse because they consider that Zionism fundamentally defending the interests of Israel is anti-French and when you have leaders supposedly French leaders ministers or even presidents that obviously the main concern is not the service yeah. to France but the service mm. to Israel or okay. other external yeah. powers yeah, it pisses them off yeah. it, it yeah. pisses it, them it, off it a touch the very core to French people, the way you're not the way they've been they're, programmed. They're not being loyal to France and French and France first. Their affinity, their loyalty is divided at the very least to a foreign country that has no real, uh, you know, has no right to exactly. that kind of affinity. And they say that's not French. It's not fair. It's not right. Uh, and that's why you guys. And that's why. The colonel is depicted by the elite and the media as an inverted Nazi salute, anti-Semitic. Because the fundamental division, the fundamental division is pro-French, pro-French or anti-French, i.e. Zionist or pro-Israel. And the twist, not so much because we know how much amalgam and twisting and mixing up of Zionist and anti-Semit concept has been done. So they transform this pro-French and pro-French versus Zionist anti-French into pro-Semitic versus anti-Semitic. And that's all where all the debates and uh, all the process will happen. Where will people go? Yeah. Okay. We're going to leave it there for this week, folks. We've uh, run over our time by almost half an hour. <gasps> I hope you uh, hope you weren't too, didn't keep you up too late. Um, well, in fairness, blog talk will up about half an hour. So. Yeah, so we'll blame Bob Lotter video for keeping you up late. Uh, send your hate mail to them. Um, <laughs> thanks to our callers and to our chatters, to all our listeners, obviously. We'll be back next week with another show uh, and you'll be able to find out what it is in the usual places. So until then, 
Thanks for listening and have a good one. Goodbye. Bye.